The following talk was given at the Advent Women's Retreat in 2020 at All Saints Anglican Church in Charlottesville, Virginia. The talk starts off quite abruptly. Due to recording error, we missed the first few minutes. We hope you enjoy the rest of the material. But respect and honor for Christ's mother have always been implicit in our faith, in the faith of our church, and in the formularies of Anglicanism. And during the past hundred years or so, much has been done to rectify the suspicion and neglect to which the Blessed Virgin Mary has been subject as a result of unorthodox teaching. It was the notion that to honor Mary and to ask for her prayers was to detract from the one mediator, which was and is the basis of Protestant objection to the veneration of Our Lady, but it would seem an odd way of honoring Our Lord to be indifferent or even hostile to the mother who bore and nurtured him. It is sometimes suggested that the honor due to Mary is an extra, which was added to Christianity in the Middle Ages. But the fact is that from the very beginning, Christians have had a devotion to the mother of Jesus. And some of the earliest Christian paintings in the catacombs show a figure of Our Lady with small orante figures asking for her prayers with hands extended. The ways in which this devotion has been expressed have differed from age to age and from country to country. But those in the mainstream of historic Christianity have passed on the profound love and veneration for Mary, which arises from her unique position as the mother of God, and have given honor where honor is due. What does the Bible say about Our Lady? In a mystical reading of the Old Testament, there are many types which are fulfilled in Mary. This approach to the scriptures, which is sometimes called typology by theologians, sees in the recorded persons and events of the Old Testament symbols which point us forward to their fulfillment in the New Testament. Perhaps the most obvious example is the way in which the themes of sacrifice, which appear in such a variety throughout the Old Testament, are fulfilled in our Lord's death upon the cross. In the same way, if we read with the eye of faith, we shall see that Our Lady foreshadowed in the unfolding of the Old Covenant, the fulfillment in the New Covenant. She is the new Eve, the mother of all the living, as we read in Genesis 3, verse 20. She is the new Eve, whose obedience is in direct contrast to the disobedience of the first Eve. She reverses the disobedience of the first Eve. She is the burning bush, burned but not consumed, for her virginity was not altered by her maternity. She is the Ark of the Covenant, the dwelling place of God. <clears throat> she is Esther, the queen who intercedes for her people. These are but just a few of the Old Testament types of the Blessed Virgin, and there are many passages and texts which have been used to point to her, such as the well-known Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. We read that in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. So when we come to the New Testament, it has often been objected that there is little said explicitly about Our Lady. 
and that some of the words addressed to her by our Lord seem rather cold and forbidding. But a careful study of the Gospels shows that this is not so. The word woman, which our Lord uses to address his mother, woman, sounds rather rude and brusque in English, but the word translated in this way is not so in the original. And one could hardly in any case believe that our Lord was the sort of bore who would be rude to his mother in public. He wasn't. Once we've read the stories of Christ's birth in St. Luke's Gospel, we realize that Our Lady herself must have been the main source for that information. And we can imagine that having revealed her relationship to Christ, she then of her own choice steps aside and leaves us to ponder these things in our hearts as she has done before us. Even if our Lord does sometimes to be correcting her, this was something he always did to those he loved. And his tone of voice and the expression of his face must have been blotted out uh, in any way that would cause any coldness. He would have related to her very warmly and kindly. Surely the way he expressed himself would show what he really meant. When on the cross he commends her to the beloved disciple, it has always been considered that St. John represents the church to whom is said, behold your mother. It is the transition of Our Lady of Nazareth to Our Lady of the Apostles, and so of the Catholic Church. St. Paul, for one moment, dwells on the identification of Our Lady with the Church when he associates Christ's human sonship with the divine sonship, which it guarantees to us in Galatians chapter 4. St. John, in his revelation, portrays the same mystery when he tells of the woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars, Revelation chapter 12. She whom we honor at the manger as the mother of God is she whom we honor as the mother of the church. The heart of the gospel is that the word was made flesh, and we can never forget for one moment that he was not only the son of God, but also the son of Mary. What does tradition say about the Blessed Virgin? The fathers are the Christian writers of the early centuries who expounded the scriptures in the light of the traditions handed down to them and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They all speak of Our Lady with the deepest reverence and honor of her virginity, of her divine maternity as mother of God, of her place of privilege and most especially her uniqueness. It would be impossible to try to give quotations for our, there are so many of them, but to mention names such as St. Irenaeus, St. Justin Martyr, St. Cyril of Jerusalem, St. Ephraim of Syria, St. Jerome, St. Ambrose, and St. Augustine, is to give only a few of those who have expressed and elaborated everything about Mary we have already mentioned. As theologians have pondered upon the privileged position of Mary, they have gradually drawn out from the scriptures and the fathers certain aspects of this mystery, which they think implicit in them. One of these has been her all holiness, and they have considered that because of her vocation to give flesh to God, she was never touched by actual sin. 
Likewise, there has grown up within the church the tradition that Mary's body did not corrupt in the grave, but was translated after her death to heaven, having assumed the glorious body, which is promised to all those who fall asleep in the Lord at the last judgment. The inference is that Mary, through the finger of God, is one step ahead of the ordinary man or woman. Now, one cannot claim that these graces are unique, for Holy Scripture tells us that John the Baptist was sanctified from his mother's womb, and Enoch and Elijah were both assumed into heaven. Nor can we really believe that these things are essential to the main tenets of the Catholic faith, although the Roman Church in recent times has made them matters of faith on the same level as the virgin birth and the resurrection of our Lord. We would say that's mistaken. Yet they are ancient and honored traditions which contain nothing contrary to reason or Holy Scripture and are in line with the great honor and love of Mary, which has been handed down to us from the earliest times. So what does the Anglican Church say about this tradition? regarding the Blessed Virgin. The Council of Ephesus met in AD 431 and said that Mary might rightly be called the Theotokos or God-bearer, the mother of God. The Anglican Church is committed to that and to the findings of the Council. We may recall that the Puritans had a great animus against our Lord's mother and in the spree of iconoclasm which accompanied the Puritan domination of England few images of Mary were allowed to escape destruction. However, the Book of Common Prayer retained her main feasts, such as the Annunciation, the Conception, and the Purification. The calendars of Oxford University and the law courts of the realm retained the Feast of the Assumption of Mary. The prayer book Collect for Christmas Day speaks of our Lord being born of a pure virgin. And each day at evening prayer, her beautiful hymn, Magnificat is said. It would be impossible to quote here the many expressions of devotion and reverence for Mary and the writings of Anglican divines, and perhaps it is in hymns that one gets the clearest expression of Anglican devotion to our Lord's mother. Such well-known hymns as Her Virgin Eyes Saw God Incarnate Born and Shall We Not Love Thee, Mother Dear, those are from the English hymnal, representing different generations, express the deep, sober piety, which is the true inheritance of Anglicans. In the past hundred years of the Catholic revival, much has been done to repair the indifference of the past. And now there are few churches which do not have some representation of our Lord's mother, either in wood or stone, painting or stained glass. Some of the ancient shrines of Mary have been restored and are again frequented by pilgrims. Perhaps the most remarkable restoration has been the Shrine of Our Lady of Walsingham in Norfolk, England, where a complete shrine church has been built and where Anglicans throng from all over the world. How do we as Christians seek to honor the Mother of the Lord? We know the classic prayer to Our Lady is the Hail Mary, which I will say now. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Although this prayer is addressed to Our Lady, it is primarily in honor of our Lord's incarnation, of which she is the symbol. In this way, it is used in the devotion known as the Angelus, 
The Angelus is said three times a day. We can say it in the morning, noon, and evening. And in many places, a bell is rung to remind the faithful of the prayer time. Traditionally, the Angelus is prayed at 6 a.m., noon, 6 p.m., but 6 a.m. could be early for a lot of people, and ringing bells at 6 a.m. in one's neighborhood could draw the attention of the authorities. So sometimes we delay that a while and may say it later in the morning. But the Angelus is traditionally said three times a day. The Hail Mary is used in the rosary, which is a method of prayer encouraging meditation on the 15 main mysteries of Jesus Christ. The focus of the rosary is the life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as experienced by his mother. Or if you will, we pray the 15 mysteries of Christ's life through the lens of his mother's experience. It is in fact the gospel in summation, a beautiful prayer that summarizes the heart of the Christian faith by rehearsing and meditating upon the central mysteries of Jesus Christ, our Lord. There are many other prayers and devotions for the use of those who wish to foster in their spiritual life a devotion to the mother of our Lord. It is perhaps hard to put into words the value of this devotional life of the Christian, but when one becomes conscious of the family nature of the church, in an easy familiarity with Our Lady and the saints will be found to give our prayer balance, which is often lacking when this aspect is absent. The church is the domestic church, embodied locally in the family, in the local home, and the church herself is a family. The communion of saints is a family, and when we use devotional practices and prayers that encourage a belief in the communion of saints, we deepen this easy familiarity with the family of God to which we belong, the family nature of the church. And one of the ways that we can enhance this is by the use of Marian devotion of the rosary and other customs, because it's about being part of the family. In the same way, we should do well to observe devoutly the feasts of the church, and especially the feasts in the honor of Our Lady. And to remember that these are like the birthday celebrations of the family, the birthdays of the mother of a human family. We can show no greater piety towards Our Lady than going to the family table and attending Mass and receiving Holy Communion on her feast days. And we think of major feast days, particularly December 8th and August 15th, and of course the Annunciation on March 25th. There are many other Marian devotions, such as visiting her shrines and going on pilgrimages, joining in processions in her honor and even lighting candles, putting flowers around an icon in church or in our home. There are some people who object to these practices and to some of the expressions used about Our Lady, but when they find that this is a family practice, maybe it makes it more acceptable. Uh, some people may find these traditional practices offensive or sentimental, but in a family, Different members have different ways of expressing themselves. And perhaps if outsiders could hear us talking to our human mothers at moments of our affection, uh, they would say the same things about Our Lady. Devotion to the Blessed Virgin as the mother of Christians is essentially a family devotion. Mary herself said, 
All generations shall call me blessed, but all generations have done better than this. They have called her every pet name imaginable. She is called Our Lady of Good Counsel, the Mystic Rose, the Star of the Sea, Our Lady of Walsingham, and a thousand other names and a thousand other places where she is particularly honored. Those who do not understand the family, personal nature of these titles, they sometimes accuse us of thinking of Mary as different people when she's invoked by different titles or names. But if they did but know, the truth is even more astonishing yet, more astonishing than some people might suspect, for each of us has our own Our Lady, because she is your mother and my mother. And it is to us that Jesus is saying now, behold your mother. Thank you. That concludes the first part of my meditation. I thought I might pause at this time, actually, and see before I discuss the Magnificat, if there are any comments or questions that you would like to offer. You mentioned the rosary. Is there more than one rosary? Yes, there are many different forms of the rosary. Uh, The most traditional form in the Western church is called the Dominican rosary. Now, that is the one that most people think of, and that is the one that is most commonly utilized by Christians in the Western church. The Dominican Rosary is comprised of 15 mysteries divided into three subcategories. You have the joyful mysteries, the sorrowful mysteries, and the glorious mysteries. And each of these mysteries uh, has five decades. Uh, The traditional format in the Dominican Rosary, and there we have one on the screen, you can see, wonderful. Uh, One, uh, Our Father, 10 Hail Marys, and one glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. So one Our Father, 10 Hail Marys, one glory be, and you go round and round the rosary. The word rosary actually comes from the idea of crowning Our Lady with a a crown of roses. And that's where the term rosary comes from, the allusion to rose, that as we pray it, we are honoring our Lord Jesus Christ. We are meditating on his life. And we are honoring his mother by doing so as well. But there are other forms of the rosary uh, that are found throughout the world. Uh, Another favorite of mine personally is called the Franciscan crown. The Franciscan crown actually has seven mysteries, uh, seven mysteries, the seven sorrowful and the seven joyful mysteries of Our Lady. And that's a, a Franciscan rosary. And there are other forms uh, throughout the world as well. Uh, In the Eastern Orthodox tradition, there's something that's similar to a rosary, but it's quite different in other respects called the chakki or the prayer rope. And that usually has 33 uh, buttons made out of uh, wool uh, around the rosary. And the Jesus prayer is used in the chakki or the prayer rope. It's not really a Marian devotion, but it's specifically focused on the Jesus prayer. And that is what is most common in the Eastern churches. But if one is looking to use the rosary as a Western devotion, uh, it is most traditional to use the Dominican form, which is what you'll find in most places. And I highly encourage its use. Absolutely. Thank you. That's very good. I have some more questions popping up here. Uh, Let's see. Oh, could I speak more about Mary as the new Eve? 
Yes, uh, St. Irenaeus of Lyon says that Mary untied the knot that was tied by Eve, that there, there was this, this knot of disobedience. And St. Irenaeus says that Mary is the new Eve and she unlooses, unties the knot of disobedience tied by the first Eve. The early church fathers love the parallel of the first Eve and the second Eve. Mary is the new Eve because of her fiat at the Annunciation. She says, behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. Now that is the opposite of Eve who said, give it to me and I'll eat it. <laughs> when the serpent appeared and offered the forbidden fruit of the tree of knowledge and good, of good and evil. And Eve said, give it to me and I'll eat it. And Mary said, no, no, no. I am the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to the word of God. So in that act, she reverses the disobedience of Eve and Mary becomes the means of human redemption. The process of our redemption begins in Mary as the one who obeys where Eve disobeyed. Eve disobeyed and gave birth to death. Mary obeyed and gave life to the world. This is why St. Jerome says, death by Eve, life by Mary. And so Mary as the new and second Eve is placed in that position by God's grace. She's called full of grace and she freely cooperates with God's grace to accept her vocation to be the God bearer. And in that the church fathers delight. There was in the garden, the original garden of Eden, there was a tree and there was a virgin. And in the new covenant, there is a tree and a virgin. In the old covenant is the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the virgin was Eve. And in the new covenant, the tree is the cross and the new virgin is Mary. So she is the fulfillment of all the biblical types of womanhood. She is the daughter of Jerusalem, the daughter of Zion. She is Israel personified. She is the virgin daughter of Zion. And she is the new Eve. Uh, now, uh, there's another question here. Uh, I'd like to learn more about prayers to Mary. It makes me uncomfortable uh, because I feel a prayer should be directed to God, right? As our Lord Jesus Christ has removed barriers, right? Yes, and that's absolutely true. We read in First Timothy that there is only one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. So when Catholic Christians ask for the prayers of the saints, we are participating and collaborating in prayer uh, with them exactly as we do on earth. Let us think of the invocation or advocation of saints as absolutely no different from the prayers that we offer for one another. If I'd fall down and break my arm, I'm gonna call up my friends and ask them to pray for me. And I know that in charity they will. And I'm sure that if people ask us to pray for them, we will pray for them as an act of Christian charity. The prayers that we ask from the saints, we ask them to pray for us. We have to be very specific. We're not praying to saints as though they were divine. We're asking for their prayers. That is a participation in the one mediation the one mediatorial life and priesthood of Jesus Christ. And all Christians participate in that. There is no barrier, of course, between us and God. The Lord Jesus is our mediator and advocate. 
When we ask for one another's prayers, we're doing the same things the saints are doing in heaven. They are asking God on our behalf, praying for us, and we can ask for their prayers. That has been the consistent Christian tradition. So it's, it's not um, in any sense different in degree or kind from the requests for prayer that Christians make one to another. I wish we had more time to get into that subject, but if you go to my blog, Phil Orthodox, uh, you will find essays on the advocation and invocation of the saints. But the saints, the saints are not intermediaries that get between us and God. They are brothers and sisters in the one family, elder brothers and sisters in heaven. They are praying with us and for us as we pray for and with them. And so we should think of it that way when we ask for the prayers of the saints. No different from asking the prayers uh, from grandma. Absolutely the same thing. They, ju they just happen to be in heaven, and they're closer to God than we are. They can see God in a way that we can't at this time. And so by asking for their prayers, we're not interfering with the work of Jesus Christ, but just the opposite. We are participating in the work of Jesus Christ as he forms his mystical body, his corporate personality, which is the church, into one mystical family, one mystical united body. Okay. Now, uh, yes, this talk will be available, and I'll be happy to distribute that. Uh, there was a question about that. Is the Dominican devotion the one I find in the St. Augustine's prayer book? Yes, that is the Dominican rosary found in the St. Augustine's prayer book. Is the Dominican rosary ideal for beginners? Yes, I began saying the rosary when I was 10 years old. It's so easy, because all you have to know is the Lord's Prayer, the Hail Mary, and the glory be the Gloria Patri. And that's all you have to know. And you can start with the Apostles' Creed. Uh, so that's it. And the guides that show you how to say it are very simple. And it's mostly about meditation as you say the prayers. So it's, uh, it is absolutely ideal for beginners. It is a prayer for beginners, and it is a prayer for experts in the spiritual life. Many of our greatest saints prayed the rosary so the simplest child or the most advanced soul in the way of holiness, all can equally have access to it, use it. It is profitable and meaningful for all Christians. So we can certainly encourage everyone to begin with it. Uh, now there's a question about the Anglican Rosary. Now the, I don't know that much about the Anglican Rosary. It is a contemporary development. The uh, Dominican Rosary was formulated uh, based on what were called paternoster beads, where Christians would have a, a, a rosary with beads and pray the Lord's Prayer over and over again. Paternoster beads were used in the third and fourth century. We know that for a fact, and they may go back even to the second century or to the end of the first. But uh, over time, the Western rosary developed, and by tradition, the Blessed Mother of God gave the Western rosary to St. Dominic which is why it bears his name and has a great tradition in the Western church. In its current form, it goes back to the 13th century. Uh, the Anglican Rosary, I frankly don't know that much about it. I tend to rely on the more, uh, shall we say, hallowed usage forms, the, the forms that have centuries of use behind them, and the Dominican Rosary is one of them. Uh, but uh, uh, the, the Anglican Rosary, I'm sure, is fine, but I would have to investigate that more closely. Uh, here we go. There's a link there to them. And um, let's see. 
And let me look here if there are any other comments. Where do we find the Franciscan devotion? Uh, if you Google that, you can put in Franciscan crown, Franciscan crown, like you wear a crown. And you'll find that online and you'll find places where you can buy that. Again, that meditates on the seven sorrows and the seven joys of the Blessed Mother. And someone has posted here uh, that, yes, you can find Anglican and Franciscan rosaries there online. In fact, there's a website provided for you in the chat. So that's wonderful. Now, um, very good. I, I just wanted to, this chat's very helpful to address your issues. I know that the invocation and the advocation of saints, by the way, is uh, the final frontier. I always joke and say that in, in Anglican Catholic theology and practice, Our Lady is always the final frontier. That's where some people are afraid to go, going where no one has gone before. <laughs> well, Christians have gone there from the first century, but for, for some of us, it's, it's rather daunting and can be rather uh, frightening. And many of us have heard a lot of negative things about it, particularly if we grew up in different traditions as I did. I, I grew up a Southern Baptist and my grandma once asked me if I worship a crucifix. And then she also asked if I sin six days a week and then go to confession and things like that. So there were a lot of misconceptions about it. And so it's always important for us to, to pray through these matters and to rely on the church's tradition and what has been bequeathed to us by the wisdom of Holy Mother Church. The beautiful thing about our tradition is that we did not invent this. We did not come up with this on our own. We inherit a tradition that was guided by the Holy Spirit. And the church in her wisdom and in the plenitude of the graces of God commended to her provides us with wonderful forms of prayer and devotion that have been hallowed and consecrated through centuries of use and have advanced souls on the way to heaven and ultimately have helped Christians to have a deep awareness, a deep sensibility of their communion with the saints in glory and their communion with one another in the church militant here in earth. And so we can trust the church. We can trust the church's tradition in these matters. The way that Christians have asked the saints to pray for us again, just to reiterate, is essentially identical to how Christians pray for one another in this mortal sphere. And when the church asks for the intercession of the saints, is exercising a family relationship with those who are fellow members of the body of Christ. Not taking away from Christ's unique priesthood, but actually exercising his eternal life of intercessory prayer as we are all found in Jesus Christ. St. Augustine put it this way, the church is totus Christus, the total Christ, head and members together, head and body together. And in Christ, we are baptized into him. And in our baptism, we are made prophets, priests, and kings. We share the threefold messianic office of Jesus Christ as prophet, priest, and king. That's true for every Christian. And so when we ask for prayers from one another, when we ask for prayers from our elder brothers and sisters in heaven, and we pray for those who have died, and we prayed for those who are here with us now, when we do that, we are exercising our prerogative, a unique prerogative, being baptized into Jesus Christ and receiving his messianic life and offices because we are truly incorporated into him. Uh, so yes, uh, and here, yes, we should think of the prayer 
more as a prayer request to Mary, precisely. This is why we call it advocation or invocation. That is, we're calling upon, we're asking. We're not praying to saints. I don't pray to my wife, but I do ask for her prayers. And so it is the same with our, our mother in heaven, the Blessed Virgin, who is the mother of all Christians. She is our spiritual mother. We can ask for her prayers. I love that. That's exactly what it is. Now, someone also mentions here, um, Mary, undoer of knots, is that an ancient prayer? Well, yes, actually that relates to the theme of Mary as the new Eve. She is the untire of the knot of disobedience. The phrase actually goes back to St. Irenaeus of Lyon in AD 150. So it is extremely ancient. Now the devotion as it's practiced today has a more contemporary feel to it, but the theological basis for the devotion is certainly very, very ancient and goes back to this theme, this idea, the concept of Mary as the new Eve. You know, we think about Mary as the new Eve. She is the image of the church. She is the icon of the church. What happens to Mary happens to us. She's the personification of the church. And so just as Eve was taken from the side of Adam, so the church is taken from the side of Christ. Christ is pierced in his side on the cross, Forthwith comes there out blood and water, the sacraments of baptism and holy communion. And by those sacraments, we become the new Eve, the church. And Mary is the, the image of the church. So as the undoer of knots, as the new Eve, she shows us that we as the body of Christ, as Christ's bride, as the body of Christ, the church, we relate to Christ in that way. So the Mary undoer of knots custom is quite, quite ancient here. Uh, in the Dominican rosary, we actually say, pray for us sinners. That's true, exactly. Uh, we ask for Mary to pray for us as we pray for one another. Now, we're running a little short on time. I still want to review the Magnificat with you. <laughs> so we'll, we'll do that in just a moment. Uh, some Roman Catholics seem to glorify Mary uh, glorify means not simply bring attention to, uh, yes, the wonder of Mary. We want to make sure our ultimate attention is given to Jesus Christ. Well, that's exactly what uh, John Henry Newman said. He said that all devotion to Mary must be Christocentric. It must be Christ-centered. Uh, think, for example, what does Our Lady say in St. John chapter 2? He says, whatsoever Jesus saith unto you, do it. So if we have to have a theme from the Blessed Virgin Mary in Scripture, that, that that phrase that Mary says sums everything up about how we relate to her as uh, the mother of Christians, as our Blessed Mother in the communion of the church, as the sign of our salvation, being the first believer, the first evangelical, the first Christian. Mary says about her divine son, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Listen to Jesus. Look to Jesus absolutely right. So all Marian devotion has to be Christocentric. That is why icons of the Blessed Virgin Mary always traditionally have the Christ child with her, or she is pointing to Christ, one or the other. She is holding the Christ child in the incarnation, or she is pointing to Christ, praying for us, praying with us, 
pointing us to Jesus. And you will see icons of, of both of those kinds. But all of that is very, very true. And if the biblical, historical, and traditional practice of honoring Our Lady is followed as the church has received it, there will be no danger of obscurity because the focus is always on Jesus Christ as we relate to him and as we relate to one another in him. But it is important to stress that Christianity is not a solo religion and it's not armchair either. The church is the mystical body of Christ and we are not saved alone. We do not pray alone. We are saved only insofar as we are incorporated into Jesus Christ and incorporation means being put into his body. And that body contains millions of members, billions of members who are all incorporated into him. Jesus Christ is the head of a new redeemed human family, a redeemed human race. And that is the church. And we are incorporated into the church. The saints in glory, the saints on earth, one and the same. The communion of saints is one mystical body. And the network, the internet of prayer and grace and life that flows in that body through the Holy Spirit is what it means to be a Christian. And that's how we are brought to eternal salvation as the work of Christ is applied to us in his mystical body. Yes. So we do want to keep that in mind. Okay, I don't see any other uh, notes here in the chat. So let's move on now to the Magnificat. It's, I'm mindful of the time. It's uh, 11.15, so I won't go too long. 